All right. Looks like we're live, y'all. I've been looking forward to this. I guess uh, we're going to find out today how many people have jobs because we're still, it's not quite the, uh, it's not, you know, the bell hasn't rung for most nine to fivers at this point. And uh, we're going to find out just how many people have. But, you know, the cool thing is that we can, you can catch us out on the way home because check it out, y'all. This is an interview I've been looking forward to for a long time. Had the real pleasure of, um, Really, right when he began podcasting, I was listening to him right off. Been a big fan for years and years. Um, and then just a few months ago, I had the pleasure of meeting him in person. We hit it off right off. Um, realized that we had so much in common, so many things going on. Um, grew up in really the same kind of place. Ended up in the same kind of place. And um, he's been something of a mentor, even though we're the same age. Um He's something of a mentor in a lot of different ways and has taught me some really cool stuff in the podcasting realm that I'm learning. But hey, before we get into it, y'all, let me just tell you right off, on my side and Jack, because we're simulcasting this, and this will ultimately go to the Permaculture Pimpcast, P-I-M-P, which stands for Permaculture is My Passion. So be sure to check us out over there, but listen to us through what Jack turned out to turn me on to, which was the Fountain app. Tip a pimp. In fact, tip some pimp. Because he's on here with it. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get hot and heavy into it. We're going to talk about some really cool stuff. And first, for the people out there, if you don't already know, you want to go over and check out the Survival Podcast, the man right here right now. Um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background of what I learned from him right off the bat when he first started. Okay, I just said from the people that have been around for a while know me as the Permaculture Pimpcast. Well, where I even discovered the name, the word permaculture, was from this man right here. Yep, back in 08. And we talked about it before in, in a little bit of the uh, interactions we've had before, and I've talked about it even before then. He introduced me to that word. When I decided to research the word, it opened up an entire world to me that immediately I was wondering, where has this been my whole life? Just like many of you out there that email me, that respond in the videos, that communicate in so many different ways. You people have said exactly the same thing to me. Where has this been my whole life? Well, the guy that introduced me to the word, to the concept, is right here with me. So if anybody wants to blame me for being the permaculture pimp daddy, just direct those comments at Jack. So with that said, Jack, it is a joy to be on here with you, my man. And by the way, folks, hit that thumbs up. Tell Zag algorithms we're live. And I'm going to remind you throughout the podcast. How you doing, homie? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, hit the thumbs up, folks, on both sides of the equation and share this. You might get one of your friends to come listen to us, and we might cause their brain to blow out their ears or something like that. And every time we get together, bro, whether it was at the Self-Reliance Festival or even the last podcast we did together, man, we, <laughs> things are going to get wild, I suspect. It'd probably be funny, but despite all the crazy things going on in the world, man, um, I love how you don't necessarily descend into the darker realms. I never, and it's also been my policy in my YouTube videos, also in podcasts that um, I'm never going to offer you a problem with, without providing at least some solutions. So, but Jack, I want to first get into right off the bat, man, I can't even, and if it's happening to me, I'm guessing that it's almost happening to you as well. And I'm getting an outpouring of so many people talking about how afraid they are of the status quo, man. What, let, let's just jump in with both feet, man. Where are you on this? I mean, 
I've been getting that since the very beginning. I've been, for those that are new to me, podcasting since 2008. And uh, I often say Alex Jones put people on the ledge and I talk them off of it, right? Like, uh, there is a lot wrong and a lot going on that's wrong. And I mean, I covered a lot of it today. Like, oh, gee, there's a shortage of electrical transformers in the United States. And some of them are back order for 96 months. That's longer than you finance a car. Uh, so there's a lot of problems out there. But I, I remain ever optimistic because I believe, number one, that humans, we solve problems when we need to. That, and I think we learn that way, too. People always worry about, you know, education system and all that. People figure out stuff when they need to figure it out. When you need to learn something, you learn it. There's solutions everywhere. You know, your Genesis story of permaculture is not much different than mine. I had started my podcast. I've been doing about six months. Somebody sent me Green in the Desert with Jeff Lawton, the old one, the one with the really bad video quality and all. And I looked at that and I was like, and I'd been bitching about my garden in Arlington, Texas. And I'm like, I got nothing to complain about. If this dude can go into the Jordan Desert and do this, I got nothing to complain about. It's hot in Texas. Wow. So what? And I found this and I just latched onto it. And what made me latch onto it, I'm, you know, I'm in the prepper space. I'm in the prepper homesteading survivalist space, but I'm all about solutions. And it was like every problem I had, permaculture had an answer for. And then the other thing I noticed is like, I started going to all these permaculture events first as a student, later as a teacher. And the freaking young kids going to permaculture uh, events were more afraid and more worried and more concerned about the future than I was. I was all relaxed. Like, we're going to talk about designing a food forest today, or we're going to talk about designing swells, or we're going to talk about zone-based, you know, architecture. And they're like, but the world's going to end. And like, you know, it probably won't. <laughs> it probably is going to be okay. There's probably going to be some problems, but you're here to learn solutions, not 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 to get all exasperated about problems. And like when I first met Jeff Lawton and I would be talking to him, I, I would realize that he would put an incredible amount of effort in a design to like preparedness and survivalism is the word you would use for it for the client that he was designing a property for. But I don't think he really saw it that way. It was more like people need to eat, they need to drink, they need to deal with their waste, they need to feed themselves, they need to make sure that they have an integrated solution to all of their problems, they need to worry about their energy, they need to worry about their housing. And so permaculture is survivalism. And, and to me, if you're going to be optimistic, there's your optimism. So there's a book, I might even have a copy of it laying around over here somewhere, um, that basically details exactly how to design your survival property. It's called a Permaculture Designer's Manual. Bam. That's what I'm talking about, Jack. You know, I, I want to also hit on the fact that, you know, um, yeah, I'm looking for my designer's manual, too. It's down in the library. I know where it is now. It's sitting next to the couch right where I sit every night. I, I just saw it, and I was like, what's it doing there? And then I was thinking in my head it was here, but yeah. But like, like me, you don't just govern um, your garden, your house. You don't just govern um, just what people think are the typical things with permaculture. You govern, like me, your business. Also, why don't you yep. tell people about that? Because you very, 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 outside of you, I've never heard anybody publicly speak about that. I definitely do. And I was doing it before I knew what permaculture was. And then when I found permaculture, I tightened it. I didn't even understand that that's what I did. And then Ethan Rowland wrote a, a very famous piece now called The Eight Forms of Capital. 
mm-hmm. where he talks about how capital is more than just monetary capital. It's spiritual capital. It's uh, it's social capital. It's experiential capital. It's, you know, all these different forms, cultural capital, et cetera. And I went, well, that's how I run my business. And I went, well, that is permaculture. And I realized, like, even the businesses I was in before the business I have now, like I was in the regular corporate world for a long time. I worked with a dude named Neil Franklin. Dude won the Branson Award twice. He's the only person ever won the, I'm talking about Richard Branson, won the Branson Award twice. Only person ever win the Branson Award that does not have a college degree. And the only person ever went twice. Dude knew how to build a business. And like we worried about things like cultural capital because cultural, we were in a recruiting space for technical recruiting. Well, that's how you bring people in. That's how you make people want to be part of what you're doing, whether the recruiters or the people that you're putting into uh, places all over the world and make them want to be part of you. And, and I really, we, we used to sit down and we'd have meetings about this stuff and we would talk to our managers and say, like, this is what we're trying to do. And we use the term soft values. That's what we called them inside a company, like cultural capital, experiential capital, et cetera, was all soft values. And when I saw that from Ethan Rowland, it, it re- referred to as eight forms of capital, it all kind of clicked. And that's when I started actually teaching. I'm like, I built this whole podcast business and it is a business. I mean, uh, podcasting is not a thing I do as a side hustle or whatever. This is how I've made my living for the last 14 years. One man show. I'm everything from the chief bottle bottle washer to the, the, the CEO. Right. Uh, I've made it doing this, but I built it on it. Like everything I've done, I- including like training my people. And I don't really look at that word as the right word for it. I just don't know another word for it. So that like all of the haters and stuff that pop up on social media and stuff like that, I don't have to do anything. They handle it. And that's, you know what that is? That's called gilding, right? So if you don't want a weed, you plant other stuff to keep the weeds out. So if you get your community educated, you get your community switched on, you get them. Not only do you have new people come in and ask a question, you know this, you can't answer every question you you get, but there's people been listening for 14 years. They know the answer. They just give the answer. Well, they also like, they beat down the weeds. Like, we don't need you around here. Goodbye. Go out. And I have all these sub-communities now that are running that I've been able to let go of, and they grow and they replicate on their own. That sounds like permaculture, too, doesn't it? Like, An awful lot like a food forest to me. Yeah. And all those in that old world, Jack, you know, I would, I would have companies come to us, and they were like, we want to, because we did consulting as well, we want to go viral. That's when viral was a big deal. They're not early 2000s, right? We want to go viral. We can help you with that, but we want to maintain control, maintain control of it. We can't help you. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, no, see, well, no, it doesn't matter. Like you just use two things that don't go together and we can't help you. And people couldn't understand that you needed to be able to. And that's what I did. Like all my sub communities and all, all these groups that have coalesced around TSP. I don't run them. I'm not in charge of them. It's some of them. I don't even know they exist till somebody tells me. You know, and that that's the comfort to know that you design something that works so well that it literally becomes a life form and replicates itself. That requires you to be okay with, hey, I built my forest and it feeds me, and it's okay if it makes some other people some forest to feed them. And that's yeah. something that most people that run businesses, they can't, they can't get their head around that. They want to control everything. Well, what if somebody makes money off of my thing? So what? So what? Do you have enough? Are you, if you're continuing to grow, are they hurting you? No, then shut up. Man, I love exactly what that, I love how you weave that all into it. And also with the guild. And by the way, for those out there who don't yet know, you can get an opportunity to see Jack and myself. I'm going to be doing a guild class 
just like Jack described in terms of business. I'll get into more of that in a minute. Um, we're going to be doing that on the 30th of September, right before the Self-Reliance Festival. You're going to be able to find links down below. Um, just go to Self-Reliance Festival. Just go ahead and um, go ahead and um, I'm not going to use that one word. I'm just going to say do an internet search and you'll find it. Um, William's not around right now. He's out doing a consultation near where the Self-Reliance Festival is going to be. So I'm technically illiterate. In fact, if it weren't for Jack right now, I'm not even sure this broadcast would be going on. My man, dude, he's over here showing me. He's like, okay, step one, you idiot, do this. You moron. I did not call you an idiot. <laughs> you I might have inferred but I, or implied, but I didn't call. <laughs> yeah. So before he's like, Duck, look, man, I know your son set this dude. It's like he had a bug in this house. He says, I know your son set this up before he left because A, B and C. And I was like, dude, he actually knew that. But the point, the one thing you're also pointing out, Jack, that I've where you're using a guild in terms of your, of your business. I also do it in terms of like you were describing how if I put in if I build that soil. Well, as you know, weeds or what people call weeds or pioneer species can't survive in a healthy environment. They're only there because something there's too much of something or there's too little of something. Correct. But also with that guild, as you well know, there is multiple, um, there's redundancy in a massive way. And in terms of business, I look at it, my business at exactly the same way. So I have numerous businesses, some of which you'll never hear me talk about. I, I would tell certain people in private circumstances but also using that same permaculture model that I've never heard anybody talk about it with any with any kind of specificity uh, the way you have. And I real I had the same sort of uh, eureka moment the last time I was talking to you. I was like, hold on, man, I'm doing I have all these different businesses, all these different ways to possibly make money, but I can survive on one. So it's no different than a food force. So I never put the same cultivar. Let's say it's a Arkansas black apple. Well, through my line where I'm painting my, where I'm doing my food forest, the next tree, the next apple tree will not be that same cultivar. It's going to be something else. So if anything comes in there that devastates that tree, it's not just going to be able to jump over that to the next cultivar. It's going to have to go through a whole minefield of nitrogen fixers and then have to make it through that cultivar, which it probably can't mess with. And then on down the line, have to do something else. So the, I look at my business at exactly the same way because we live a low consumption lifestyle, high quality, that we're able to do that same thing. So like you said, in every aspect of my life, every single aspect of it, it is governed by permaculture. But I'd never heard of anybody talk about their business in that way until I heard you. And after it wasn't until after I talked to you about that um, out at the Self-Reliance Festival that I saw the video later before William was about to put it up. And I, I, I was like, how did I miss that, man? That was, that was pretty profound stuff. And it's exactly the way we govern our lives, man. So I can't thank you enough for that, but man, there's a lot of, there's a whole lot of people out there looking to make the jump to this, uh, to this space where, where you are and to a certain extent to where I am. Um, I've not been doing it as a full fledged career as long as you have, but it is in fact, um, you know, it's what I do for a living. Um, it's not all I do for a living. But I want to kind of move into something else real quick, man. Um, Can man, I say I something on that, though, real quick, about how these businesses end up that way? Sure. So one of the real fundamental guidelines to permaculture is that restrictions dictate design. And Jeff Lawton once famously said, the more restrictions on a design, the more elegant the design if the designer is good at his craft, right? 
So if I wanted to lead someone in a designing a living room to put a TV on this wall, a chair here and a couch there, if I lay the room out with the walls a certain way and put certain things in there, almost everybody that designs that room is going to end up putting the couch here and the chair there and the TV there because there's windows over here and it's going to create a glare and I don't want to block the window and there's a fireplace there and the restrictions then dictate the design. And that's something we all understand. Well, permaculture, as you know, is driven from that prime directive, taking responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. Don't screw up the earth. Don't screw up people and, and reinvest to the end of the first two. That is permaculture, but it's it's culture. And the way Mollison got all that stuff is he went out and he investigated all these different indigenous cultures that were still around, had a remnant, whatever. And he he tried to distill it down to the commonalities that existed between them. In other words, what was the thing that like some group in, in indigenous culture in Hawaii, aboriginals in, in, uh, in Australia, you know, and then North American, Native Americans, like what was the commonality? And that was the commonality. That was the thing that every culture that was that was taking care of itself and not disintegrating into the end of oblivion followed these principles. So if you have those ethical principles in you, if you're like, I don't want to mess up the planet, I don't want to hurt people, and I believe in reinvestment to what I'm trying to accomplish, your business is going to come out looking like permaculture. Right. Because the, the restrictions that you self-impose will dictate the design, whereas large businesses are steered by the restrictions that are applied by the state versus the ethics of the founders, right? So, like, that's why you see a lot of businesses. They're really great businesses. They go public and they kind of, they might still make a lot of money, but they ain't what they used to be, Google. Anyway, just saying. Anyway, please go ahead. No, no, you, you're hitting it out of the park every single time, man. And by the way, uh, Snail Creek, yes, I'll be out at Self-Reliance along with Jack, and, yeah, I'll be bringing bone sauce. And I'm going to bring my pocket constitution and my homeboys do too. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to be bringing a lot of stuff. We'll have a, we'll have a, um, we'll have a table set up there, but Jack, I want to hit something real quick before I sure. here's a little bit. I think you just hit something that is one of the biggest problems in terms of doing designs for folks. And it's the lack of understanding of the definition of elegance, which to my understanding is basically concise and simple. And I see people throwing a lot of, uh, William does a lot of, in fact, he's out as we speak doing design work right now. I no longer do it because I am fundamentally an efficient person. And in fact, I'm very impatient with those who aren't. And um, when you do designs for a lot of folks and, you know, present company excluded, and I mean the people in this, uh, in this thread right now listening to this podcast, or excuse me, Pimpcast, they want they want to add 10 more steps to something that really only requires two, or they want you to do something silly, like take chickens and put them in zone five, because I just feel it over there. People that do their designs and they screw it up. I, you can, and, and that's why I don't do design work anymore, bro. I'm sick and tired of designing a place for somebody. And then they'll put their, for example, they'll take their chicken coop, which should be probably depending on your design. It all depends. And let's say I situated, I designed it where it should be situated near your garden so the interchange can happen. And then all of a sudden they put this thing in zone five and then wonder why coyotes killed all the birds. Um, I well, they think, live there. There you go. <laughs> the coyotes live there, right? There's elegance. 
Right. Very simple. They live there. You put their food there. They ate it. Yeah, that's elegant for the coyotes. But yeah, I'm, a lot of people miss that in the way of these designs. They want these extravagant designs. We should. I try to do any kind of design, anything I'm doing, almost in accordance with the way that I would do a food forest. I want this thing. I wanted to put it on autopilot. I want to use tons of perennials wherever I can. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing at the Self-Reliance Festival, where annuals are cool. I have no problem with that. We have plenty of annual gardens around here. But within certain systems, especially in these times, we ought to be looking, at least I think we ought to be looking, for perennial solutions. For example, here in these mountains, high atop Billy's Jungle Palace of Love, we got this tomato that grows around here, bro. The locals call it Tommy Toes. And I thought it was just a mountain way of saying tomatoes. But no, that's what they call it. It's Tommy Toes. This thing is almost invasive, Jack. It's a little grape tomato, and it tastes fantastic. But sure. you never plant it. So why, why am I out there trying to design in a tomato that was uh, designed for, let's say, let's for Italy or France or whatever? Why would I do that when there is a tomato right here outside my front door that grows prolifically without any intervention? And it does well in these mountains. I mean, that's exactly the designs I'm trying to put not only in everything I design here on my homestead, but also in anything I design elsewhere. But people seem to forget what you described there, this elegance. And I don't understand why that is, but I'm, I imagine you got thoughts on it. Well, so first of all, simple is beautiful. And when you said that, it made me think of years and years ago, before I was even doing my podcast, I was in New York for a social media conference. This was early days of social media and stuff like that. And uh, we ended up at this hotel bar of the hotel we were staying in. And they had this chick singing some badass Bob Dylan and stuff like that. And everybody was kind of drinking like the food stuff had been shut down. And the guy that ran the bar, he said, I didn't know that's who it was, but he's sitting at the bar and he was, he went back and he, he cooked food for the staff. And me and my buddy were sitting there for one reason or another. He was like, get them a plate. So it's like this pasta with a little bit of butter and garlic and some arugula, just a little bit of chicken, probably five ingredients. And I, I, I'm like, this is amazing because it's simple. And this old man, old Italian dude, right? Real Italian dude. He gets up, he grabs me by the cheeks. He like kisses me on the fucking cheek. And he's like, he's like, I love you. I love you. No one understands simple. Simple is hard because you have to do it right. And that's the reason why. People are trying to overcompensate for their failure to get a design right. If I just make it more complex, if I just make it more complex, nature's complex. You don't have to make nature complex. The complexity in that tomato you're talking about is that it was self-selecting for many generations on its own, and nature did the complexity. All you got to do is run with it. And then, you know, you're kind of in a situation there where you're getting into, is it a perennial or is it an annual? Well, when nature's doing it, everything's a perennial, unless it successes across time. Right. So what I mean by that is there are annuals that will self-recede, self-recede to the point you might. I mean, people think they're perennials. Well, it comes back in the same place every year because it dropped its lamb's quarters. It dropped its seed there. It's, it's an annual. Trust me, the plant's dead. The new generation has come. But that plant might success out of that niche as it becomes a full on perennial, becomes a forest system like that plant you're talking about is going to grow in edges. It's going to grow in the transitional space between herbaceous and woodland, right? It's going to be in that area. It's, it's not going to grow out in the middle of a field. 
right? You know, just out in the dead middle of a field, and it's not going to grow in the forest. It's going to grow in that edge space. So wherever that edge moves, that plant's going to move. That's complex. We don't have to make that complex. We control where the edge is, and that's where we're going to get our Tommy Toes tomato, right? In your, is it going to grow for me? Probably not. It's adapted to 3,500 feet elevation in North Carolina. It's not adapted to 400-foot elevation in, in a very arid, dry, tough climate like I'm in on a limestone shoal. So I need to grow something else, or I need to let something else grow. Um, on the consulting thing, dude, I feel you. That's what I got out of consulting for. And it's why I never went into permaculture consulting. I never went into consulting in the, in the survival homestead space at all. I'll give people advice, and then you go do what you want with it. I used to do consulting in the, in the marketing, web space, things like that. And I would lay out a very simple, elegant plan. I'm talking big brands. Trump was one of my former clients. I mean, that, that's how big I'm talking here. And then these companies would take and they would implement half of what you gave them. And then they would complain they only got half the results you promised them. And I used to tell them straight to their face, like, you're lucky you got any results. I didn't give you a plan to be partially implemented because the entire plan is holistic. And when I went into permaculture, I'm like, this is way more complex, even when it's simple, than marketing is dramatically simple and easy, right? Permaculture, you're dealing with living things that have their own ideas. And then you deal with people. Well, I read in a book, you know what your plant doesn't do? Read books. It doesn't care that it flowers in September. In your microclimate, it, it, it flowers in May. Right. That's when it, you can't read to the plant and make it change what it's going to do. Or, you know, it, you can't you can't plead with the plant to grow. You can't beg the pest to go away. You have to accept that feedback following that permaculture principle. And then you have to reapply what you know based on that principle. And when something just works, I'm with you. Run with that. Well, this thing just grows. Is it edible? Yeah. Eat it. This thing just grows. Is it fixed nitrogen? Yeah. Harness it. This thing just grows. Can you eat it? No. Does it fix nitrogen? No. Do animals eat it? Yeah, feed it to your animals, right? Does it provide shade? Does it provide, what does it do that functionally benefits your system? Harness that and run with it. But what people want to do, and this is where all the complexity comes from. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be the next YouTube sensation. Everybody wants an article published. So people start trying to put things together that do not belong together. And many years ago, I started seeing this happen. People were learning, like, who culture took off. Seth Holtz, great stuff, right? Swales, like, Jeff Lawton really blew up. He did his first big PDC, really got big and huge. And everybody wants to do what? Hugo culture, swale. Don't do this. So I wrote an article, and I submitted it to the Permaculture Resource Institute in Australia and said, if you think this is good, publish it. And they did. And the wailing and gnashing of teeth and anger, that article's still there. You can read the comments. It's like comics. I read it. <laughs> Don't you tell me what I can do. I'll do whatever I want. And I'm like, force equals mass times acceleration. And this is a buoyant core. And it will float and go downgrade and smash stuff. Your emotions do not apply to the way this works. So th what these people didn't really understand is like, I'm not saying you can't throw some stray organic matter in front of your swell and cover it up. I've done it, Jeff Law. We've all done it. I'm talking, if you're talking hookah culture, you're talking a meter and a half, two meter high pile with a 70% wood core, and you're going to put a swale in front of it on contour. You know who says not to do that? The master of the swale, Jeff Lawton, and the master of the hookah culture, uh, Seb Holzer. Both say don't these two things don't go together, but you're going to do it. And then I told a story in that article. Uh, Mark Shepard, I'd just been in the field with him, and he told me this happened. 
He said a bunch of guys got together. They got a church all in on permaculture. They're going to make a hoogle swell. And this was hand up. You get a, you get a, see my concern at the time I wrote that article, somebody's going to get a hold of an excavator, you know, something like a 24 ton excavator. They're going to start pulling trees down with a grabber and you can start playing with forces. You do not understand. This was just a bunch of people got together. They trucked in the wood and they hand dug the swell, but it was a pretty good size hoogle mound. And they got it on contour. Would have been a good time to not get it on contour. They got it on contour. Giant rainstorm came. Water come off the church roof, filled up the swell, bloated hoogle mouth. And the people that told the story said it started floating down the road. And it looked like it was barely moving, very, very slowly moving. Again, though, force equals mass times acceleration. Slow speed, very heavy, lots of force. It went into some building across the street from the church. Smashed the entire wall down, filled the business with mud and wood and crap. And so I wrote that article because I didn't want to see that happen again. And I could just see in my head somebody with one of them big excavators just laying trees down and people got upset about it. But the reason they got upset and the reason they couldn't stick, stick to simple elegance, make your swales, put your hoogle mounts in the inner swale, don't put the hoogle mounds on contour. You don't want to float something buoyant with mass down the, because they wanted it to be something they came up with. None of us come up with none of this stuff, folks. All this stuff is as ancient as human. All we're doing is rediscovering this technology. Everything we come up with, we're just piecing things together that already exist. People are already doing it. I don't know if you ever listened a lot and explain the agricultural systems on Hawaii before it was colonized. And these systems that begin at the top of these volcanic mountains and how they run all the way. That is the most complex yet simple and elegant form of agriculture I've ever heard of in my life. You ain't inventing nothing new. Just learn what you can, rediscover what you can, and run with it and be and stick to simplicity. I couldn't agree more, Jack, with the um, I see that a lot. In fact, I've been asked about this Hugel Swale thing more times than I can count. And and it's like no matter how many times you tell them, hey, this is an awful idea. And I even cited your article. Okay. I well, remember. I really hate you. And no, <laughs> they're married to this idea instead of, you know what? Swales may not work. You're greater than 15 degrees. Swales ain't working for you, nephew, but you want to do them anyway. You know, maybe the key line design works for you. Um, maybe there's some other dog that you need to take to the hunt, but people become married to these ideas. And trying to get them out of it is astonishingly difficult. But, hey, real quick, folks, the ones that are out there, hit that like button or hit that thumbs up, whatever they call that thing. It helps whatever algorithm is. <laughs> Tell everybody that Jack's dropping it like it's hot. And he's on here with the permaculture pimp daddy for the guy that was wondering who I am. Um, anyway, Jack, I want to hit you up about something else, man. Um, because there's so much fear going on out, the, out there, but I got to say it, dude, because I see that flag behind you. And, of course, I resonate with, resonate with it. But I got to wonder if you haven't been doing the lamentations of Job and taking down your Union Jack flag. <laughs> In light of the uh, latest things that have happened over the couple of days, are you crying rivers over there? or How are you doing on that? I know it's totally outside the realm, but I got to hit you up about it. Because I see everybody everywhere going on about a um, – I don't know that I heard you address it. So if you have anything to say about it, I'd love to hear it. What, what are you talking about? Uh, the monarch over there, you know. Oh, the, oh yeah. we're all concerned that a uh, that a 96-year-old billionaire died of old age? 
What a concept. I, I didn't hear crying over anybody. You know what I just thought? This is unbelievable. So the National Health Services in, in England, because they have free health care, which is so much better than what we have, of course, uh, is canceling surgeries during the national period of mourning. So some of these people have waited months to get like a cancer surgery or something like that. They, like literally, if they don't get it soon, they're going to die. But we're going to put a pause button on because we have to mourn the loss of a night. You know, my thing on that, dude, I, uh, <laughs> if you talk to anybody and they were like, my mom died or my grandma died, right? You'd be like, oh, man, I'm sorry for you. How old was she? That's the most common question we ask. Well, how old are they? And if they said 96, you might still feel for them. But you're also like, you know, you had a good well, run. Yeah, like the dash goes away for all of us, right? Like, I always say we define our lives by two years in a dash, and we're the dash. Your dash burns out. In 96, you had a good run. You're like, well, what was your life like? Well, she was a billionaire. I got no, no sympathy, none. Like, not because I'm a heartless bastard or anything. Just like, that's life. Like, I don't get, I don't care if they're a politician, a royal, whatever, and, and I – it makes me think of like all the times I'm like, you know, is it is it is an English person? I don't understand. Like 1775 was so we didn't have to care what you thought, right? So I'm not real worried about any of that. I and it's not mean. I don't hate Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I'm sure she had an interesting life to be a figurative head of state, not a real head of state from World War II until like three days ago. Amazing story. In the end, she's a 96-year-old woman that died. Do you know how many people die on an average day in the world, Billy? A lot. 150,000 is an average. She's one of 150,000 people that died a couple days ago. That's, well, that's all you, that is for me. Well, do you see anybody flying their flags at uh, half-staff for any of them? Yeah, I don't I, you that. know, that was what my, my wife and I were out, and they've got some of our flags, like car dealerships, have the flag at half-staff, and I'm like, it has to be for the queen? I don't know. And I don't, I'm sorry, I don't get that. I guess ally World War II, but I I don't know. I think it's dumb. And it's not, it's not mean. It's not hateful. It's just, I, I just don't care. I told you when you, when you got on, like I had a, I had a glass of beer before we started this and I have a Pittsburgh Steelers uh, bar glass. I was drinking out of it because it's my favorite glass to drink that kind of beer out of. It's just shaped perfectly. I haven't watched a football game in four years. I'm not mad. I just don't care. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't affect me. I have too many things I'm doing in my life to worry about this stuff. And some of the stuff I don't care about, I do a little bit because it will affect me sooner or later. Like, you know, the fact there's electrical transformer shortages, that that might actually be a problem at some point. Or food shortages, even though I'm fairly food self-sufficient, like it still affects the world around me and the world around you affects you. Queen Elizabeth, nope. Not inside circle, even concern, let alone control or influence. I just wanted to be sure you didn't, you weren't hiding a Union Jack anywhere, bro. I wanted to, I wanted uh, to ask that. I wanted to hit that's a couple. My flag right there, bro. Yeah, that's <laughs> my flag too. <laughs> Since we're talking about current events, man, I look. It, it's really not the reason I got you on here, yeah. but um, I gotta ask in light that we're a day removed, and that is regarding nine eleven. Now, okay. if if I got you on here. And it's just, I guarantee somebody's going to email and say, hey, man, why didn't you ask him about his thoughts on 9-11? Yeah. That would be a touchy thing, but I know that you can navigate just about anything. So I'm just going to stand back and let you so, 
say it's, about it. It's funny. I covered this today, and I said there's three very uncomfortable truths about 9-11, and they're probably not the ones that anybody here is waiting to hear. In fact, the, the, the less you believe the mainstream narrative, the more uncomfortable these truths will be for you. Number one is whether you believe a little bit of the conspiracy or all of it, like the plum total nut job, outer space aliens did it through Marmaduke's brain or whatever. Like no matter what you believe about it, no matter how many times you chant building seven, the Pentagon, cruise missiles, whatever, the uncomfortable truth is it doesn't matter. It's been 20 years and whatever was done, they got away with it. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. And you convincing your uncle Frank that you're right won't change that. Number two, for the last 20 years, we had the wrong conversation. The conversation we should have had, whether it was exactly what they said, which I don't believe, just to be clear, but even if it was 19 dudes with box cutters and Osama bin Laden in a cave to, you know, Larry Silverstein is behind the whole thing or whatever you want to come up with. We had the wrong conversation. The conversation should have been about the erosion of liberties in our country. We should have never even invoked why. Just, hey, this shit's bad. The Patriotic Act is not patriotic. The, the, the Freedom Act is not about freedom. No, it's not okay for the NSA to spy on your grandmother's emails. Right? These are the conversations we should have had. That's uncomfortable truth number two. Uncomfortable truth number three. It's too late to have that conversation because the gradualism with which it was done has erased the potential to reverse it politically anyway. We need to now use technology and tactics to render them obsolete. And the final nail in the coffin on it's too late for that conversation is there's very few episodes in human history that people literally define their life before and after. So an example of that would be 9-11. I think that you probably define your life pre and post 9-11. There's a, there's a line in your timeline there and you think differently before and after it. Well, COVID came. 20 years is about the average span of those types of events. And once the new one comes, the old one is off the radar for people. And a whole lot of people you're talking to, they weren't even, they, they were still pooping in their pants when 9-11 happened. I think we have in our minds as we get older, as time, time kind of moves at a different speed, we don't think of 2001 being that long ago. That is a long time ago. Think back to 1985. Right. And think how long ago 1965 was in your head. Well, that's how long ago it is for these people now. They're not going to listen to you. And, and so what we need to do now is focus on the future. And this isn't giving anybody a pass. But the reality is the people behind it. And I do think there's some serious BS that went on there. And I do think that our government was involved, if not at least complicit. But the people that actually did it, you're not putting them in prison. They're not going to prison. It's not going to happen. Most of them are dead soon to die or at least aging out, right? I mean, I don't know how old Bush Jr. is, but he, he, you know, he'll be one of those billionaires that died that people sob over in not too long a period of time. And, and you're just wasting your life, that precious life energy you have, other than as a conversation. Like, I'll talk about JFK, but I also know, you know, we ain't, we ain't going to move that needle in any direction. We, there's a point where you let go of things and you deal with now. It also goes to show, at least in my, in my end of things, is I think history proves over and over and over again that you're not waking up anybody without starvation. And what I mean by that, there has never been, I, in my own personal judgment of it is, 
I don't know that even in the height of the Roman Empire that there's been a level of depravity that we have right now. And frankly, I don't think you're waking up anybody regarding anything that's going on with the status quo, the nefarious things that have happened November 22nd, 1963. They murdered a U.S. president in plain sight, told everybody it was done from the back, even though it blew his head out the back of the car. And nobody bought it then. You, three buildings fall and two planes hit it. Nobody cared then. COVID is already off the radar despite yeah. all. Oh, shoot, man. Are they going to knock this whole transmission out? You I can said, say the COVID word. You just can't say anything about the stabby stabby. Okay, bro. I, yeah, I'm <laughs> in Baltimore here without knowing it. So I'm glad you got me. <laughs> that. But honestly, just like I'm not a big flan, a fan of Plato or at least his level of what he thought good governance was. But Plato's allegory of the cave is right on the money is that in all these obvious events that we saw, and the people at that time, by the way, in every single one of the events you have cited, not one of the, the people of that time never even entertained, by and large, it were the outliers. It was that, I don't know, whatever percent that might have been that asked critical questions about that, which is why the CIA invented terms like um, conspiracy theory right after you know, JFK, when people started asking critical questions. And of course, you know, it persists to this day to the point that the American public is no longer able to say the word conspiracy without them following it with theory. We ought to do a little, ought to do a little test on that one of these days. But Jack, I couldn't agree more. Um, it really, I never, I never thought about it until you put it in those terms that really in the pantheon of the things that matter. Yeah. Should it be examined? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, the, the nefarious SOBs that did this are never going to be brought to justice. And frankly, there are too many people that know more about November 22nd, 1963. They know more about um, September 11th, 2001, than they do about what happened in their home for the last week. So these assassination aficionados and these, um, these other people, and frankly, for a while there, I was one of those people back in the day. And then you realize how much time you've invested in something that in the end won't even amount to a hill of beans. So it, it's really folly. And it's, um, yeah, I, I like what you're saying there, Nicholas. It's really folly. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I'm looking for my outlet too, which by the way, before we get on to the next question with Jack folks and something I was going to talk to Jack about also um, just a little side note, you could even call it a commercial break. I'm not being paid for this. But honestly, folks, if we're speaking of off ramps, we need to be looking for some of them. Um, Jack has told me about a few and one more that's kind of come on my radar. And I'm actually on there now is freesteading.com. So if you don't already know about it, folks, for those of you out there that are looking to do business um, in, a, in a platform that doesn't hate the bones of you, check out freesteading.com. Also, some of you folks that are wondering, hey, can I buy and sell? Can I barter? Well, they're working on that right now. And then this is going to really raise Jack's ire is that even, and it's already set in, as I understand it, as I've talked to the people that, um, that are putting this thing together that are in, responsible for it all. Freesteading.com y'all is also going to have a crypto wallet where we can do business that way. So I know my man, Jack is probably salivating like Pavlov's dog on the other side of this microphone, but it looks like these guys have really put together something in a place where we can all kind of get together. So as far as pulling ourselves and not spending too much time in these nefarious acts that have happened and that, and are happening, let's maybe think about some of these off ramps. Jack, do you know of any more off ramps? I know, you know, of quite a few and some of them probably have to do with crypto. You want to talk about that? 
Yeah, I mean, let's start off with the freesetting thing. I haven't actually dug deep into that, but I did hear it on one of your shows. I was listening to a few of your shows uh, last week, and I've just been really busy and I haven't dug into it, but it sounds very cool. I think your biggest off-ramp is probably the most overlooked one. It's your diapers. Talk to people. It's amazing to me how we've gotten into this political tribalism online, but we're not. There's some crazies out there. Don't get me wrong, but most people, they actually live their life completely different than what you see online. And what, what it makes me think of is when I was a kid, I was like 15 years old. I got a job working for a dude named Muskrat Purcell. Muskrat Purcell, I'm, I don't even know his real first name. Everybody call him Muskrat. Muskrat Purcell ran a junkyard. And I had a pretty good gig for a teenager. I'd ride my bike. This was before I had a driver's license. I'd ride my bike up there, and I had my tools I kept up there. And I had a key to the office. I'd go and never even see Muskrat, you know, hardly ever at all. And there'd be a list of parts that needed to be pulled and where to find them. And I'd go pull the parts and put them all in the bin. And then my money from last week, he paid me piecework, would be there. And and I would take the money and I would go. And this is central Pennsylvania, mid-1980s, union ground zero, Democrat ground zero, more taxes ground zero. And all my uncles and stuff that were all Democrats would be like, well, you're working for Muskrat? Yeah. Is he paying you under the table? Yeah. Good boy. Slap me on the, on the shoulder, right? So they were all fine with not paying a tax man as long as it wasn't some random person created in a newspaper article five miles away and our biggest off-ramps are often the people around us there's a dude a mile down the road from me that sells cattle he sells out every one of his his cows every year and then a lot of us like i don't want to hold cow the amount of meat i have from hunting and from butcher box and from my own production i don't need a cow i'll take a half of one so all of a sudden there's a network of people like because doing dealing with the regulations and all right what he'll do is I, we, we buy the cow, we pay for it at the processor, and we don't buy the meat from him. We buy the cow from him. And we, but, but what we'll do is we'll split a cow, two people, or some people do a quarter. This is creating an entire network here. And, and, and I don't know, the guy that I split the cow with last year, I don't know how the hell he votes, and I don't really care. Why, why would I care? So I think that sometimes we miss the off-ramps because we're too busy looking for a different sign, if that makes sense. Now, there are a lot of ways we can do things. I mean, Telegram's great. We have a lot of groups on Telegram. I love what the guys you're talking about are doing. I think these these festivals and expos and workshops and all, I think that's a huge thing. But what you're doing there, you got to think a little bit like a salesman. And salesmen get a bad rap. And there's some that deserve it, but most don't. And in sales, you learn that the only reason you go into a cold market is to get into somebody else's warm market. So if I'm going to start making prospecting calls, I'm going to call up Billy Bond and be like, I understand you have a podcast. I have this new podcast service. If all I'm doing is that all day long and all I'm doing is getting, you know, one Billy Bond that converts for every 100 that tell me to go screw, right? Talk to my son and hangs phone up on me. I'm not going to get anywhere. But if I can get through to one in a hundred and set up a demo and show you that my thing really works and you're like, shit, this is actually good. And not only do you buy it or use it, but you start telling other people about it. Or you say, I got this friend. He also has a show. His name's Shakespeare. He's a jerk, but he'll listen to you. If I, then I'm getting into more, right? You got to start looking at these expos, these festivals, all this stuff like that, that way. 
go as much for the experience as the people that you meet. And then do not let those relationships die when you go home. Why would you do that? You spent a couple hundred bucks. The money's nothing compared to the time. I mean, I run my workshop every year. You're going to be here this year in November um, talking about what you do with, with feeding animals off, uh, you know, restaurant waste streams and stuff like that. What what humbles me the most isn't people spend their money. It's that they show up on Wednesday and stay till Sunday at my house and they pay me for the privilege of camping in my yard, hanging out in my garage. Like that means the world to me. And when those people come and they invest the time more than even the money, I always tell them, if you don't leave here knowing two or three people well, that you didn't know the day you showed up, you're making a mistake. And I always get, like my events have a huge return, you know, people coming back, people 60% maybe or been three or four times. Like, don't let the pre-existing relate. I know y'all come here to talk to each other. You're friends now. And this is when you get to see each other. It's crazy to build something like that. But like, make sure you're, you're, you're making new friends every event and they do real well at it. And I think it's because ours is kind of small. We cap our students at 50. Um, but these bigger events, four or 500 people, people kind of get lost in the crowd. Don't let that happen. You know, and, and don't follow up for what you can get. Fo follow up for what you can give, how you can help other people. Like if you do that, you can build all the websites you want, but nothing replaces that real world stuff. Like, I was talking about this on my show today. Again, this guy, uh, Buddy Shoemaker. He lived three houses up from my grandfather. Dude made homemade wine. He was Cleo Wilson from that song, Dust on the Bottle. He's oh. literally that dude, man. But he had a little scam going. And I mean scam in a good way. You bring him stuff. He makes wine. He gives you 70% of the wine. He keeps 30% of the wine. And this dude made rhubarb wine. He made My grandfather had these really old grapevines he made beautiful wine out of that he made fruit wines he made freaking sake he made everything that dude could pick up a phone back when everybody anywhere around you when you asked somebody for a phone number back then they gave you four digits the last four you had to dial the first three not the area code but everybody had the same prefix so you just had four digits he could pick up and call anybody in the Dagon county it seemed like and if he couldn't help him he knew somebody that could those, those are what we need to rebuild. We need to start rebuilding that type of community. We can't think that we're going to switch some website on that won't be censored. And just because of that, we're all, you know, we're never, we're never going to have a hundred percent entropy, entropy free economy. And we're going to never have enough of us doing enough things that we'll never need to buy anything from anybody else. We need to expand that horizon and we need to do it the way our, our, our parents did. I couldn't agree more, man. In Remember fact, the parent internet? I know you had a parent internet when you were a kid. That meant that when you were you were two towns over on your bicycle and you did some shit you weren't supposed to do, yep. when you got home, you were already in trouble. And you had no idea how they knew you did it, but somebody knew somebody. Like, that, that's gone. We don't have that anymore. You, you talk about a surveillance state. <laughs> the World War II generation was the master of the surveillance state because they just paid attention to everything. And they're like, did you see what that kid did? Yeah. Who is he? That's that's Andrew's kid. And I got home, my grandfather, I was in trouble because I did some shit I should have done. Right? We don't have that anymore. We need to bring that back. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you when it comes on so many different levels. You know, I pretty much I when I retired, man, from my job doing electric work, um, I was pretty content to kind of ride off into the sunset and um you know, do my farming, do my permaculture, do everything. And then just kind of 
um, do the very opposite of what M Mark Twain suggested, which, you know, he spoke ill of people that would kind of vegetate in their own little space all their lives, you know, and I was content to be that person. My son kind of forced me out of it, got me into the YouTube space, went into it kicking and scratching. But it, I got to be honest with you, in terms of community, it led me to other places. And then I go to the Back to the Land Festival, which, by the way, the next one's coming up next weekend. I meet Nicole and I meet a bunch of other awesome people. And I had to go into that one almost kicking and scratching. If it weren't for Matt and Gabby who were doing that thing, I would have never gone. But I met Nicole and I was processing a pig out there. And then that led me. She's like, hey, do you want to come out to my place? I'm like, um, or not. Well, not well. Yeah, that didn't quite come out the way I intended. Right, I, got, I got you. <laughs> event that i'm organizing and you know i kind of went into that and i'm thinking okay we'll go check it out well lo and behold look who i meet man i wind up meeting jack spearco ken barry um john everybody within this this whole constellation of some whom i've many of whom i had heard about and known but i never thought in a million years i'd ever be in the same room and have access to go up and say hey what's up man how you doing all these wonderful people, not just people that everybody knows about, but also the benefit of that guy that comes up to the table and says, hey, man, I know where you might be able to get trees for, on the discount rack. Or a lady that comes up and tells me things that, um, you know, tells me how some of the videos we've done have changed her life. And another guy comes up and says, man, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you guys don't do the fluff, the homestead fluff. That you go out there, you kind of lay out how to do it, and then you move on. But I would have never had that joy of meeting all these wonderful people, yourself included. Forgive me, Jack. I'm not going broke back on you here, bro. I'm just saying that I wouldn't <laughs> have the benefit of meeting all these wonderful people had I not gone to these festivals, which I was pretty content to kind of, you know, not even mess with again. So Jack's got a festival coming up. We got back to the land, like I said, and then following the weekend after that, Nicole Sauce, by the way, check her out, Living Free in Tennessee. Uh, she suggested, hey, if you got vacation time, go hit both of them. Go hit Back to the Land, which is not far away from the Self-Reliance Festival. Hit the hit the Swale. You're going to get basically in the in the um, Guild class, you're going to be getting two for one. You're going to see what a real deal Swale looks like. And I ain't talking about one of these little um, – it's not going to be some – there's nothing wrong with the size of Swale you have, but the one you're seeing here is going to be on the industrial level. You're going to figure out how we do our chop and drop and how to put all that stuff in there, but you're going to be getting a, a lot in the process. So folks don't forsake, despite what the powers that shouldn't be are out there telling everybody, don't forsake the notion of going out there and hitting one of these festivals because you, like Jack said, you're going to walk away with maybe friendships you have for a lifetime. You're going to walk away with fantastic business opportunities. You're going to walk away and probably find out that there's somebody at that festival that lives about 15 minutes away from you. Yeah, Jack, it happens to me every single time. It does. I have people that are business partners now that originally met at one of my workshops. And uh, my workshop will go on sale on the 24th of September. And anybody that's hearing about me for the first time, if you want a prayer in heck of coming, you need to go to my website. You need to get on my Telegram channel. And on the 24th, at 929, not 930 CST, you need to be watching that channel like this and you need to click immediately and you need to reserve your tickets immediately because last year we did 65 students and I paired it back because I felt we got a little bit too big and I felt some quality control issues started to hit when I let it get that big. And I also thought my 
my property is going to tip over like Guam, right? Because there were so many vehicles on it. And uh, so I cut it back to 50. It sold out last year with 65 people in two and a half minutes. Wow. So, I, I, you know, I'm a little bit different than like John's for people that have been there where he's got like five. I don't have the room for that number of people. We do a very intimate thing. And that's so when you come and you meet like somebody like Billy, he can talk to you more than five seconds. Uh, that's another reason I paired it back from 65. I felt like I wasn't giving people enough time face to face, even with 50 people over three days, you can only give, you know, even in small groups, people so much time and really hear them and really listen to them. So we keep it very intimate and uh, we do some things like, you know, we have a barter blanket and that's uh, there's a lot that's learned and a lot of re relationships are formed on that. We have a rule during the barter blanket. If you video something, I throw your phone in the fire. Cause you don't video what happens on the blankets like Vegas. It stays on the blanket. Sometimes there's some deals that are a little gray market. I'm just going to say that, you know, like that stuff like that. So we, we want everybody to be able to be open, but we had people show up like for barter blank. This is interesting. What people learn about themselves. Like I really didn't bring anything, Well, what do you have? Well, I didn't bring anything. No. What do you have? And this one person's like, well, all I have is three Airbnbs. That's all you have. <laughs> That's all you have. Right. And the one dude, I'm like, I'm like, don't you live on like 80 acres and hunt deer off your porch? He goes, yes. Yeah. I said, so you're a hunting guy. Well, no, I just take people. No, <laughs> no. And like, I, I challenge people when you're putting events together, don't always try to do the biggest thing. Try to do something unique and different. The way my event got made the way it was, I went to a bunch of permaculture stuff and I'm not saying anything really negative. I just looked at all the things I didn't like and said, I'm not going to do that. Like I went to one and they fed us nothing but vegetarian food. No, mm. uh, uh, no, uh, and it ain't. It, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, and everybody was hungry, and you could tell. Like everybody's like, "Oh, it's great food." Well, I went out and bought a bunch of like fermented meats and all, and I'm and people are like smelling it, you know, and like over your shoulder and look. I'm like, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, they had, you know, bring your own dishes, and I'm like, somebody gonna pay me six hundred bucks for three days? I'll take care of dishes. We can. I'm not having people bring a plate and a cup and and wash it. No. No, like we're going to have full service here, you know, like try to and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the other way. I'm saying if you're going to do this yourself, try to do something unique and a little bit different. And and I, I think we've done that. And uh, some we have a question here. Maybe, you know, because I'm not completely sure on this. The uh, Self-Reliance Festival, October 1st and 2nd, does it include the Guild and Tree planning on Friday? I don't think that. I know the base ticket doesn't, but does the VIP ticket is what she's asking. So I, I think the VIP, we, we would have to go to Living Free in Tennessee and hit up Nicole yeah. about that yeah. because she's really the brains behind all this. I just show up with, um, I'm going to show up with guild plants and stuff like that. But my thought of it is, I know that um, the, I, I'm pretty sure it's a separate thing, but the VIP is going to get you parking inside the compound. That's one thing. Big deal. That's a big thing. And then also there's going to be a VIP dinner that first night where you get to meet people like Jack and, um, and Billy. They're going to, well, they're going to dress me in a white outfit and have me serving Jack. So oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> dude, I don't care about political correctness. That's funny. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of those people like, Oh, Oh, cause that's what happened to me. I made a joke after your presentation and these are our people. And they're like, oh, I can't believe he said that. Jock said that. Oh, I will clutch my pearls now. And it was like, dang it, he was just up here five minutes ago. All I did was play off of what he said. Dude, we didn't even tell nobody what it was. You either were there or you missed it. 
No, you missed it, man. That was a, I mean, it was hilarious. I didn't speak until later, but I was like, I don't know how you didn't bring the whole house down because in light of what I said up there, I said, if, if anybody, let's say you had a, a real lefty and I'm hoping that folks in this crowd that, that are going to show up this time realize it's okay to laugh. There were things that were funny 30 years ago and they're still funny today. Yes. And in light of what I said up there in the, um, and the presentation I did, it was about the chicken tractor on steroids. And I had no idea Jack was coming up after me. But what he said should have brought the house down in terms of how hilarious it was. And it was far more benign than oh, yeah. anything I said. And there were some uh, there were a few, few folks in there like, uh-uh, really? Did, did he just say that? Dude, I was like, dude, that's hilarious. And I'm So, folks, if you're of the liberty-minded crowd and plus the crowd at this event, Look, um, let me just go ahead and say this right now, because I know there's going to be a number, which, by the way, I got that shirt, Jack. It's supposed to be on the way here. I was going to wear it. order, too. <laughs> I was gonna say, but I'm going to wear it at that. I'm going to wear it at the um, SOE event at the Self-Reliance Festival. And, folks, if you want to know the story behind this, you're going to have to show up to that event. It's hilarious, and it's awesome, and it's another one of those things where, Jack, that shirt wouldn't exist if you and I never met. I would not be taking the chicken tractor on steroids to the next level had you and I not spoken. And none of that would have happened had we not been at the same room. So the beauty about going to something like this is not only are we cutting up, having a good time, everybody's laughing, but we're also cross-pollinating um, things that like the chicken tractor on steroids. And then I get somebody like Darren from Hacks for the Homestead who happened to be there say, you know what, bro, I got a better design on the chicken tractor for that. Instead of lifting up the lid and pulling the stuff out, guess what? I made a crank handle. You just wheel it out the back. Then Jack looks at it and says, hmm, you know what? I bet the Johnson Sue method could be incorporated into this. Make it even easier. That's the beauty is that we're able to cross-pollinate our ideas and I think there's not enough. I bet a lot of that happens at your event as well, Jack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of my best presentations are not even presenters. So I always try to leave between our last presentation and dinner because we do all meals and everything here um, about an hour and a half. And I call it open time. And we have a great big whiteboard, like a five foot by three foot whiteboard. And we just let people I'm going to be here. I'm going to be talking about this. And, and we have these impromptu presentations. And a lot of times, some of my presenters the next year were those people the prior year, you know, and, and then like we have things like it doesn't end here until you go to sleep. And some people don't go to sleep hardly at all. Like it's like a little bit like a frat party mixed in with a permaculture homesteading workshop. We'll have people up at two, three o'clock in the morning doing uh, karaoke out in my garage and that all that kind of stuff, like have fun with life, like. Everybody thinks I'm the doomsday guy, man. I'm the most optimistic person you'll meet. I was just on a podcast with like, they were like a younger millennial couple. And uh, they're asking me about everything that's wrong. And I'm telling them all the stuff that's wrong. And I'm, I'm like this the whole way. I've got a grin. I'm happy. I'm laughing. I'm making them laugh about the things they're worried about. And finally, the, the guy was like, well, why are you so optimistic? I'm like, because we know all the solutions. We know all the solutions. And actually, the worst it gets the easier it will be for us to apply the solutions because when people get hungry enough, they'll stop complaining about chickens, right? They won't complain about the your, your Karen neighbor will not complain about chickens when she's hungry and you give her eggs. 
All of a sudden, Karen will love the chicken. She'll stop being a Karen. You know, I don't know what the anti-Karen is, but maybe she'll become the a permaculture Karen, right? Like, like and all these problems we have, and then the big structural problems at the state level, those are great because the busier those guys are, the less time they have to bother us. Like, if everything's running perfect for them, they have, that's when they're, like, I'm going to have the Baker's Green Acres guys on to tell their story about what happened years ago with them. Well, that's when everything was pretty good for the people in charge of the state. They had time to go bother a dude raising pigs out in the middle of Michigan or Wisconsin or wherever it was. But they ain't got time for that right now. And the worse it gets, the less time they have for all us little small-time guys that are out here doing our own thing. So let it burn to the ground because we're, we're the ones that are going to rebuild it. And, and I don't see us taking over. I see us building parallel to whatever solution they come up with. But the, the longer they're dealing with their problems, the more we can get away with putting our solutions in. And what we need is time. When you get a, a significant solution in place, it kind of gets the – I call it like Native American reservation theory. Do you know what a politician won't touch? Native mm-hmm. American reservation. That's that's the real third rail. You don't you don't mess with, with Indian reservation. You just I, I don't want to know. And that's why I think they're not they're not utilizing their resource enough. I would have my own hospitals. I'd have my own health insurance. I'd be selling provisional citizenship, but I'm not. But we can sort of kind of use that same type of model. And if you make a nice enough solution that benefits enough people, then you get. Remember the movie Tombstone. And after the, the gunfight at the OK Corral, Sheriff Behan comes out and says, oh, you're all under arrest. Remember what Wyatt Earp said to him? I don't think I'm going to let you arrest us today, Behan. Right? Like, that's, that's what you want to create. You want to create that. You build something good enough, you're gilding, and the community defends it. Ron, I know you know who Ron Finley is in, 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 in South L.A. He's putting all these, these gorilla gardens in. You notice they're not tearing those out? You know why? Because when when old ladies and young kids at the same time are like, we don't want this to go away. They got other things to do. They got other problems to deal with. So I'm incredibly optimistic. I don't care how bad things get because we know how to fix them. That's why I don't even cover uh, a lot of the doom and gloom. I do to a certain extent to say, hey, interesting coming up. But you know what? There's not one. There was a lieutenant back in the army that said, don't ever come to me with a problem to which you haven't already provided two solutions. And I yeah. live that. I really do. So if I tell you, hey, this is what's going on, you better believe I'm going to have a solution, maybe two. And like you, Jack, I'm not – I don't sit here waiting with bated breath because I'm ready. And I didn't just start this yesterday. And if you did, you can still get ready. Um, it just seems wise. It seems very wise, just like the Depression era, where these people would um, – you know, it was indelible. It lasted all their lives. Now, I do want to say real quick, uh, the lady that asked about how do you leave for an event, I'm going to tell you how we do it. Um, well, when you're when you're when it's an event that's a little bit of ways, they do have there, there are networks out there where you can get people to farm sit for you, and that's all wonderful. You got to be a little bit careful. But also if it depends on what you have. If you have sometimes like animals you need to milk, well, the going thing is, is hey, you keep all the milk that you you know, do for me while I'm gone, you do with, you know, and then you cover them. That's how you do it. It goes right back to that community. I know Jack, I think Jack wants to hit a question here, but speaking of community, Jack, um, if you want to answer this question, that's fine, but I definitely got to hit you up about something. Everybody in your great grandmother is hitting me up. They realize the size signs of the times they know on the 16th, the railroad 
strike is going to happen. There's a lot of other things, calamities befalling, whether it be through the weather patterns, whatever the case may be. There's a lot of things unfolding all at the same time. And one of their solutions is, and I, I wanted to ask you earlier, and it had to do with, hey, should I forward up with all these different people and make my own community, which I think is a colossal mistake because I've been down that road. Every single time I've done it, it has been a colossal failure. And that was with my family. So I want to know what you think about that. But if we can go into this question here that you have highlighted if you want, but um, I'd like to know what you think about that. Oh, uh, yeah. The, what I have highlighted there is actually um, what my lieutenant used to say he was a first lieutenant he made it class being butter bar and he used to say the definition of a of a challenge is a problem with no apparent solution and that meant go to find the problem now on your it's like you're hitting so much of what i covered today it's really interesting the synchronicity there so i said today that i think we're approaching this entire intentional community planned community thing wrong that we need to be thinking more like the, the the buddy shoemaker wine guy that i'm talking about the way things used to be um, when I was a kid in, in Pennsylvania, Philly was about two and a half hours away, but I had friends down there. You go down there, every neighborhood was its own community. Like, and it was a strong na nature to those communities. This idea we're all going to move to a place together or whatever, if it works for you, fine. But most of the ones I've seen work at all are basically benevolent dictatorships, right? And, and basically the reason it works is when somebody doesn't work, they get ousted and then you drag a new person in. If you actually look into intentional plant communities, 98% of them fail. I'm not real big on going down a path with a 98% failure rate. I don't think I'm that much smarter than the average person that I can do something that 98% of people fail at. And I don't want to be a dictator, benevolent or otherwise. I don't want to be benevolent, benevolent, or, you know, I don't want to do any of it. So I, I think if we're going to build communities, we would be better off either building community where we are, or if we did want to do something a little bit more intentional, there are hundreds and hundreds of, of, of declining small towns all over the country that already have basic infrastructure, right? And they already have a basic structure. And you can move 20 or 30 people into some of these places and take the whole place over politically and basically say our politics is none, right? <laughs> like nobody's allowed to bother anybody, right? Leave everybody alone. And, 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 and try bringing people together that way. But I think that there's a reason that we tend to live like this is my house. This is my castle. This is my land. I want my land, my way and to do my things. And I want to be friends with my neighbors, but I don't want to ask my neighbor's permission if I'm going to switch my breed of chicken. I'm really not interested in Dennis's. I like Dennis. He's a nice guy, Vietnam vet, served two tours as a Navy corpsman, amazing old man. But I don't I don't want to ask his permission to get a pig. And I'm not gonna. And I think when you get into these planned communities, you get into the, everybody has their vision of what they want it to be instead of their vision of what they want their place to be. And then you're going to end up in conflict. And then there's a lot of people, I think they, they love the idea of it, but they're not the one that's going to pick up and move. They want to see somebody else do it. So you got to get, now, most people tend to actually live. I know this is crazy. Most people tend to live where they want to live. So they're not real big on moving uh, 2,000 miles across the country to go join your hippie commune or your, your anarcho-capitalist commune or whatever it is. And that 98% number is, is constant across the anarcho-capitalists, like the Ancapistans, it's uh, permaculture, the hippie communes, whatever. And actually, the people with the best success record are the hippies that have like this ethos of like, you know, like a socialism ethos. 
Socialism's fine in your own little place that you paid for and you own, right? But the, or they're religious, right? A religious bond is really strong, right? And, and so, it, to me, no, I, I'm not going down that path. I'm not a particularly religious person. I call myself a redneck hippie duck farmer, but I'm not a drainbow hippie. I'm not that kind of hippie. Um, I, I think it's a waste. I, I agree with you. I've been down that road before and tried to do it with family. And also I have been to some of these communes. And um, when I was really waking up to a lot of this stuff, I was still living in Kansas. And I remember there was this one where they were all wife swappers and stuff, man. And uh, that, they had another one, but like you, they kind of fit within that matrix you were describing. Yeah. And, or it was a, it was a dictatorship, whether it was benevolent or not, <laughs> I don't know. But I know one thing I'm, I'm like, okay, I don't think I want to roll up on this property and have somebody, you know, hey, bro, I ain't sharing. I'll just put it that way, bro. I don't <laughs> but it ain't going down that way. I always thought that there was a, another way that could work is that, you know, it was like when they came over on the Mayflower, there were people dropping like flies. Mm -hmm. And they were, they basically had a, a, a social or a communism. It was really communism, what they had going on. They basically had a pot. Everybody was digging in. And, um, you know, I remember the governor reading, I can't remember where I read it, but he was saying, hey, you know, these women are basically claiming that they they got a headache. They can't get out there and work the plow or can't do this. They can't work a hoe. And the guy, he's saying he's going off hunting, but the dude's off for a week and he comes back drunk. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he changed it. He says, okay, here's the governor of that colony said, look, we got a new political structure here. Everybody, okay, basically – Agorism is what he came up with. I mean, they didn't yeah. call it that, but that's what it was. And guess what? People started, people quit dying. All of a sudden, ladies that before that were very pregnant were out there working this thing. And then the guy, guess what? He would go out a day later, got a deer, come back. Yeah. Now, when everybody didn't have this common pot, all of a sudden they were able to make this community work. And I don't think that it can work in the modern. I know that it, I, I really believe in my heart, Jack, that it could. Let's say, for example, Taking the construct that you're talking about, the only place that just jumps out to me is a place like by John or Nicole, where land is still affordable. You can get a lot of it. But if I were to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna move my command structure, I'm gonna have a western command from the high top of North Carolina, and I'm gonna move within, let's say, two miles of John. And then let's say Jack comes out there and let's say he has a eastern command. And he moves over there, and let's say he's within a mile of either of us. Let's say we're two miles from Nicole. Let's say there's some other people that know we're all there, and they're freedom-minded people, and they move in. But they all have their own little uh, fiefdom. Not even a fiefdom. Yeah. Let's say their yeah. own little paradise. We have mutual aid groups. That can work. Oh, that can work. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm talking about, like, you want to talk about a town that's shrinking that could be revitalized. Camden, Tennessee would would fit right into that type of model that I'm talking about. Um, and it definitely would benefit from some larger known people being part of it. That makes people want to be part of it. But again, you're back to, you have your property, your home, your fences. And it's like, you know, good fences make good neighbors, right? I mean, like there, there's even a biblical principle that it's your responsibility to fence your ox in, not my responsibility to fence your ox out. Um, though I think fences are good around every property if you can afford them. And, and that type of mindset, I think, would, would work really well for people. 
and and that I think you can do. But what that's about doing is rebuilding 1960s America, right? May, hopefully abstaining from some of the problems they had back then. But to take back what was good about that time, what we did, we look at we look at that time in America and we say, here's all the shit that was wrong with it. So let's throw the whole thing out. And we, we, we forget how, how many things were really good about it. I, I've seen a lot of memes lately, you know, make me think about this. Like you see this woman and she's at home and she's got two kids and she's happy and she's all pretty and dressed nice and everything. And, and she's all happy. And it says oppressed. Right. And then you see this woman work until midnight, completely miserable and alone and no family. And it's empowered. Right. And we, we've just and I'm not saying women shouldn't work. I'm just saying, like, that's not the only option. Right. Like having a family is work. Trust me. I know I have one. Like and I think there's a lot of women out there, for instance, that, that if they thought it was really an option, like we have, we have economically priced people out of being single income families. anymore. And, and I think there was a real value to it. And that doesn't mean that maybe gal's not an entrepreneur, too. Right. Like, you know. I, I only leave my house when somebody makes me, right? I mean, I like working for myself. I think that's empowering. I think we need to teach that again. You know, the problem with some of these smaller communities is there's only so many jobs. There's only so many SOE tacticals in Camden that you can go work for. And if you don't work at SOE tactical, you don't work at SEO tactical. That's, that's, I used to tell some of my sales reps, like, if you're not a not sell here, you can go not sell somewhere else, right? Like, and that's, that's, that's how real jobs are. You lose your job if you don't do your job. So to make that model work, you have to really do an encouraging spirit of entrepreneurialism. And you can't have 50 farmers move to a place and all farm and sell farm goods to each other. It doesn't work. Right. I want to sell you tomatoes. I got all the tomatoes. I want to sell you tomatoes, right? Like, like you know, I'm going to sell you sheep. I got sheep. You know, there's some trade that goes on there. But we have to think bigger than that. We can't just be agricultural concerns. And as we already discussed at the beginning, you can build any business on a permaculture model. And you should because it makes a successful business. That's what I'm talking about, man. That's where and, and you know, truth be told, I'm actually considering seriously about doing what you described there. Yeah. Uh, mutual aid groups work. But, you know, where 10 people are in there trying to figure out how we're going to Jack, you and I get along perfectly. But I guarantee if you said, okay, here's 100 acres and <laughs> you guys to come up with a – I want you to collectively come up with a plan that both of you are absolutely fantastic about. Even in that circumstance with that much land, we would still have differences, maybe big differences on how we ought to govern that. I got the plan, though. We, we design the property beautifully and we sell it at such a premium that both of you and I get to go buy our own 100 acres and do whatever we want with it. That's, that's what probably what we would do. That's right. We would probably like, how can we make a whole bunch of money off this property? Maybe sell it to 50 people, two acre plots. And then Billy and Jack can have their own hundred acres to do what they want with. Cause we have different, we're different artists. We have a different palette. We have different agendas. We have different goals. We have different methods and there ain't nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Really, you know, I'd love to live on a hundred acres next to you. I don't know if I'll, a hundred's pretty big. I think we could just split it in half. That'd be the other way we could do yeah, it. Right? That would be a way going 50 about. acres, five acres would wear my ass out. Fifty's like five acres I'd manage and 45 of it be for hunting and fishing and collecting mushrooms. Exactly. But that's exactly <laughs> what I, I like having buffers. So maybe we could do it. I don't know. But, you know, not yeah. if you want to put a community on it. We'll be throwing everybody out. We'd be a community yeah. of two. Well, we ought to talk about <laughs> 
is that uh, there, there are some cool ideas in the work that I was going to hit you up about regarding that certain that particular thing. But also at the end of the day, I got to have my own little piece of Idaho, just like you do. I need that spot where I can call my own, call my own shots, even in terms of where there's, let's say, common areas. Let's say you had 100 acres. I mean, I've heard, I don't know how many different derivations of the same sort of thing, and I have yet to see any of them work. There was another place in Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah, it is Lawrence. I mean, that's the one place where I try to feed a homeless dude and walked in there, and the dude tells me, um, yeah, he wants a veggie pizza because the rest of it will kill him. But even there, there were some places that worked. And in those places. Oh, I got a Lawrence, Kansas story, bro. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, this even that intentional community that they had, I think it was called Delaware Street Commons. I knew a lady that worked there or lived there. Even there, I'm looking at it from the outside, and I'm like, okay, everybody's in a little apartment. How is that any different than the city? I mean, so you you have these common meals out there where everybody's sharing their varieties of kale. But, dude, if something didn't die at that dinner table, Jack and Billy ain't going to be happy. But I got to hear about this uh, thing in Lawrence, Kansas. Oh, dude, this is not a permaculture story at all. This is just crazy Lawrence, Kansas. I didn't know there were hipsters in Kansas. I didn't know that was a thing. This was like a day after Trump got elected, I was driving up uh, and I was going through Kansas to go on a hunting trip. And I see the exit. I'm getting to where my eyes are burning. I'm like, I guess I'm staying in Lawrence, Kansas. So I go on a can Lawrence, Kansas, find a hotel room and I go get a steak. It was a terrible steak, terrible salad. And I'm like, well, I'm going to get myself a bottle of wine and salvage this night, go home, watch some TV and get up in the morning and drive up to, to Iowa where I'm going to be hunting. And, Go in this liquor store, and there's this chick in there, and she is losing her shit at the guy selling the liquor. And he looks like he has no interest in what she's saying, but she is just going. And this woman is so white, she ain't seen the sun ever. She had like the skin that looks like you touch it, it stick to your finger, kind of freaky, kiki looking hair. And she's talking about how it's not safe for her on her college campus anymore because of Donald Trump. And it's not just Trump, it's his supporters, and they're all and, and on and on and on. And I, I finally, I all I really want to do is pay for my bottle of wine and know where the hell to get a corkscrew from. So I'm going to say anything to shut her up for five seconds so I can pay for my bottle of wine and go back to my hotel. And I said, that's an awful nasty thing to say about that many people. They can't all be bad. And she turns and looks at me and starts lecturing me on my privilege and going on and on. And now I'm going hunting. I ain't shaved in like two weeks. I got a grizzly Adams beard. I've been in the truck for nine hours. I probably stink enough to be smelled over her particular odor. And, and so she goes off. And finally, I'm like, you know, right before I left to come up here, my husband and I were just talking about that. And we don't really feel that threatened. And she got wider. Right? It's like all the blood went out of her. Like, I'm like, my husband and I were talking about this and, you know, like, I, I don't know as a gay man, I don't really feel threatened by this. I think everything will be okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't know. Like, Can I get my wine, please? So I pay for the wine and I'm asking the guy, where where the hell is the corkscrew? Right? He's like, oh, we can't sell a corkscrew. I'm like, you what? He said, we can't sell wine and a corkscrew in the same place. Because the law, somehow this protect. I don't know if it's a Kansas law or Lawrence law. So you got to go next door to the co-op, which is a grocery store, and you can get no, no freaking corkscrew there. I'm a prepper. I did not have my Swiss Army knife, but I did have my my cordless tools, 
screws, and a pair of pliers. So I ran a freaking drywall screw <laughs> into the bottle, pulled it, and it, that was, and then drank it out of a like plastic cup at the freaking hotel. And I'm like, I am never going to this town ever again. This was one bad experience after another. And I didn't even know. So I, I'm like, hipsters in Kansas? So I'm sitting there drinking my plastic cup of wine on my, my laptop at the hotel. And I'm like, hipsters, Lawrence, Kansas. And the first thing that came up was an article. So the happy hipsters of Lawrence, Kansas. And apparently they've infiltrated everywhere, Billy. They are everywhere. But that I knew you'd like that one. My husband and I were talking about this. Oh, man. <laughs> Had a great little experiment that I want to try with you. I would have loved it if we had known each other then. I would have pulled up your picture. So you want to see a picture of them? <laughs> Bro, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> some stuff in my life, dude. And Lawrence, Kansas, man, is so messed up. Um, but I will say, Jack, if you would have known me back then, I would have directed you to a place where you will get a Kobe beef burger. Okay. With- Best fries you've ever had in your life. And all the fries are cooked in duck fat. So the next time you head through there, yeah, you can't miss. It's, I mean, dude, they make these duck. It's called the Casbah Burger Stand, and it's on Massachusetts Street. Man, yeah. I am keto as, as hell, but if you offer me a potato fried in duck fat, I'm going to eat it. Brother, you don't get that every day. Yeah, you only got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of watching myself, too. I'm down basically a little side note man i had to lose a little weight john told me if i show up to the next soe event after saying that i was going to be in good shape he says if i'm not he's going to be dogging me so i've been like full-fledged like i'm getting back in the old fighting weight as they say and um yeah so i'm not going to give him the opportunity to make me in the spectacle so i'm making sure i'm getting in shape or at least as good a shape as i can get between now and two weeks from now but yeah bro next time if you ever go through there again to go hunting, whatever the case may be, you stop there or tell me, dude, that is the ball in this place. Kobe beef burger and duck fat fries. There is no way you can say no. You're going to have to go nah. off. You're have to go off the keto wagon for a little while. Nah, this steakhouse sucked. Like, so they bring me this salad. It's like iceberg lettuce and it's brown. You know, when it turns brown. So I'm like, I'm not a big complainer, but I'm like, dude, the salad's brown. He goes, just, that's just how that kind of lettuce is. <laughs> And I said, that makes me sad that you believe that. Because I could tell he wasn't lying. He probably had never seen lettuce that wasn't brown. <laughs> yeah. The quality is not work. there, bro. I guess it's beef, you would think, you know. No. Yeah, no, I know. It was just worse than a Ryan's or like a, I don't know, Flatiron or something. It was not. Shoney's would have been better. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll square you away the next time you're going through there again. But hey, bro, I know we're coming to the near uh, the end of what you had available, and I got to get out here and knock some things yeah. out myself. Jack, um, man, hey, y'all, for those that I know there's going to be thousands that watch this afterwards, I just want to tell you right now if you want to see Jack and you want to see me and Jack act a couple of fools out there, um, there's even going to be entertainment out there at this next um, Self Reliance Festival, um, Testimona, and I think there's going to be a it may be also a couple of other people that are going to be doing, they're adding new things every single time. You're going to see straight up what a real deal swale looks like. You're going to see a swale tied into a ridgeline pond, which you don't see every day. And you're going to see us plant this thing out. You're going to see this thing pimped out. But really the cool part about this is that the interaction you're, I remember Jack was going to the porta potty over there 
And um, he had just walked out, didn't wash his hands, and some dude wanted to shake hands with him. So <laughs> <laughs> if you want to shake Jack's hand on his way out of the porta potty after he just peed on it, um, uh, trust me, it ain't that homemade mead this guy was selling up there. <laughs> well, we did drink some mead. There yes. was nothing to wash my hands with in there. It was a porta john. I mean, I was I was three steps out. There was like a little place to do something. I ain't been there yet. Yeah, sure, man. Whatever. Brother, they were wrong to you like you were Michael Jackson. Well, not Michael Jackson, but uh <laughs> you know, the last time we talked, you were on my show and you brought up about the camps and we were cutting up about the the, the FEMA camps that they threw us in the camp. I can't tell you how many people wrote in and it was what I was thinking, but I didn't say it. They said the only thing they could see in their head the entire time we were talking about it was Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> and when you see my front gate, we're going to have to do something with it when you come here because it looks like Starlog 13. I had a great big high chain link with, with barbed wire and stuff on the entryway. It, it, you know, I had a friend came and he said, I was waiting to see two guys with German shepherds waiting on the inside with a guard shack. So that, and I was thinking it when you were talking about going to FEMA camps and being thrown in there together, I was like, it, it, we'd have a tunnel that we could get out. We'd be coming back in and blowing shit up. And, you know, you got that training, you got that sapper training, man. So. Well, brother, we don't have to. Hopefully, we don't have to go old school on a lot of this stuff, Old Testament on anybody. But um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I know you live up by the same the Stitch Jones philosophy of don't start no sh and there won't be no it. Yeah, yeah. But a good don't time. Start nothing won't be none. That's you know that's 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 how it works. You, I, I, I'm a very big believer in the non-aggression principle. Me and too. the non-aggression principle does not mean I will not use aggression. It just means I'm going to do it first, and I will be proportional. So if somebody walks up to me on the street out of nowhere and shoves me, I'm not going to go put them in an armbar on the ground and dislocate their shoulder, right? Like that, that that would be a disproportional response. But I might be like, dude, I don't think you should do that again. Or I might offer you a choice as to which one of your shoulders gets dislocated, right? Like that's that's the non-aggression principle, and I think we all should live by that. Have you ever asked yourself why they don't teach in school? Why don't we teach kids the non-aggression principle? Like in great, because the first question a kid would have would be, well, then what about this? And it would all be stuff government does that violates the non-aggression principle. Because the non-aggression principle can be summed up as don't hurt people or take their stuff. Well, that would be a great way to build the society. But if your entire society is, is, is predicated on parasitism of the people, which is what statism is. You can't talk about the non-aggression principle because it's like it's the elephant in the room type of situation. So yeah, we'll we'll have to talk about that more. No, I definitely get back with you on this one, man, because I I I, I too live by the non-aggression principle, and it's funny because I'm best the bestest friends. I know I just I used the Don King ism on that. All right, most splendiferous people. There goes and Don King at the same time. So I'm going to intersperse Tigger and Don King at the same time. Tigger and Tigger and King. The 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 cool thing about this, Jack, is that I'm realizing now if I didn't get myself out of this bubble that I was content to be in, I'll be honest with you, because I'm I'm perfectly content. I'm people don't believe me when I say this, but I am perfectly content all alone, indefinitely. And I'm perfectly fine. And if I have to be in the company of other people, it is such a joy 
be in the company of other people that have the same values I have that see the NA, the non-aggression principle the way I do. Don't start no SH. There won't be no IT. I don't, that ought to be on a shirt, you know? Yeah. I'm realizing all it was, uh, I said it before to someone else that when you get that many alphas in one room at a thing like the self-reliance festival, unless if they're fake alphas, they're out there looking to, you know, see whose blood they can spill on the floor. That's not what happens there. That's not what that means at all. It means also that we're going to be in the company of other people where in this day and age, you know, Jack, they would find it a little more normal if you and I were to show up on that stage out of self-reliance wearing ballerina shoes and a, and a tutu. Um, <laughs> you know, just like you're telling the girl in Lawrence that you got a husband that looks a lot like me. Um, <laughs> you should have said my African-American husband. I, you know, I was off my toes as quick as I could on it. That's all I had was my husband. I, I was always, you know, it was that, that, you know, the devil and the angel on your shoulder going, don't do it, do it. Go ahead, do it, do it. And the devil won that day, you know, like it was fun, you know. Well, it was fun. But than- I, I'm going to get you in a tutu. That's what's going to happen now. And Billy Bond, and you come out, plie. <laughs> Bro, these days, it, you know, I'd, I'd look completely fine. I mean, I think I'd, I think I'd do pretty good in a tutu, Jack. I mean, I told people at the last time we got together that your beard tickled, so there ain't no telling what they're expecting this time. (laughs) (laughs) Some lady that didn't get the joke, the same one who likely didn't get the joke that you made after going on stage after me, was likely the same one. What? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Good time at an insurance seminar, so there's no two ways about that. I'm looking forward to seeing you out there, and um, I know we're going to I think you're going to be at uh, Airbnb, not lo- not far from me, man. I really want to talk to you about some other things, maybe when we get offline here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, folks, before we get out of here, I want to make sure you, I remind you, um, I know Jack's event's going to sell out at like light speed, but we got a few tickets left if you want to get into this next class we're going to do on the 30th. And you want to go and check that out because you're going to get a two-for-one. Everybody asks what does a swale look like? Well, you're going to find out. You're going to see what a swale looks like. You're going to see how it was done. You're going to see how it goes into a ridgeline pond. You're also going to see how we plant it and how we integrate, like Jack was describing earlier. We're going to show you how we guild all of this stuff where everything works together, even the animals in this landscape. We're going to show you how all that happens through good design. And we're going to also show you how you do this. You're going to help us put this together. It's going to happen. You're going to see that. You're going to see Jack. You're going to see Dr. Ken Berry, who Jack introduced me to. You're going to meet all these other people out there that you didn't know existed. All you people that feel like you're marginalized, that nobody in this world understands you. Well, guess what? There's two people having a conversation right now that do. So um, join us out there. It's going to be a great time. Jack, I can't thank you enough for the gift of time, bro. I really do appreciate it. Can't wait to um, do it again, man. No, No problem. One thing I'll say as we sign off here on the events I'm glad you brought that up about not feeling like you're alone. It's something that I've noticed over the years. So I have this rule Sunday, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. You have to leave. And I have a 1030 get off the property rule. And what you'll watch is these small groups form right at the gate and they just kind of hang out there and they don't go. And then finally, like, I don't ever, I don't ever want to be the heavy at my own event. So like one of my staff will go out and go, and they'll go have donuts or something somewhere. You know what that is? I'm not weird. I feel normal. 
I'm around people like me and I don't want it to end. And that's why I'm never that big of a, I, I give the time, but I don't really push people out, out of the gate hard because I understand that. And, and that's kind of like, we run these things and all these people come and you realize like, it's a very diverse group of people, but there's a common, there's a commonality between them. And that is that they all believe that they can do something in their life to make their own life better. I, I think dichotomies are actually really rare and they're used as the false dichotomy is one of the greatest uh, control tools that exists in, in the world is to create the Democrat, Republican, Pepsi, Coke, all that stuff. But there is a dichotomy in humans that exists and it's generally a person is either a person who will see a problem and do something about it or see a problem and expect somebody to do something about it. And I think the big commonality is that you're around doers and you're around people that are like, I want to solve a problem. I'm not saying we don't occasionally get some that's a little bit out there or something like that. But in general, you meet people that you, you wish were your neighbors. That's right. And, and maybe we can keep doing more and more things to make it where they are your neighbors. I think that would be a better world to live in. That's what I'm talking about. Couldn't have stated it any better, y'all. So there, here we here we go, y'all. Everybody here's from the great Jack Spearco. Stay alert, stay alive, y'all. Thank you so much for checking it out.